Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, I hope everyone is um, healthy and safe. Um, I know these are very trying times. Um, you know, I've used the term unprecedented in, in my recent episodes and, you know, that is not an understatement, um, given the socioeconomic, political, and, um, obviously health impact the pandemic has had on the world. Um, you know, a lot of our friends and families included. So I genuinely hope that everyone is following the instructions and staying healthy and safe and thank you for doing your part. Um, I think we as physicians are immensely grateful for uh, individuals and people and families who've consciously made the decision to follow the instructions and, you know, for, for the health and safety for everyone around us. Um, with that having been being said, I, you know, I am very excited for today's, uh, guest, uh, uh, we've been trying to record this episode for several weeks and because of her role um, that she has to fulfill uh, and just, you know, my own obligations um, as a clinician, uh, it's been a struggle, but we're, we're finally here. Hmm. Um, so my guest on the show today is Dr. Rosenbaum, uh, Lisa Rosenbaum, someone who um, I have admired for, for a long time. I uh, unfortunately never really got a chance to see her in person, uh, even when I was in, in Boston. Um, but Lisa, you've been extremely impactful, um, in my journey as an author, as well as a writer. Um, but I should introduce you first. So Dr. Rosenbaum is a cardiologist at the Brigham and Women's Heart and Vascular Center. Uh, and, uh, she is, just, um, this is going to be an, an, an extremely important, uh, introductory title. So just hold your breath, the audience and, and listeners. She is the national correspondent for the new England journal of medicine. The new England journal of medicine is arguably the most impactful journal in all of medicine and science. So Lisa, welcome. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, no, it's our pleasure, and uh, I'm glad to learn that you are uh, healthy and safe. And uh, I'm going to start uh, the show by asking you the question of what inspired you to become a physician? What inspired you to pursue a career in medicine? Oh, that, that question's easy for me. So my, my parents are both physicians. My dad is a rheumatologist, and my mom is a cardiologist. And... Um, 
my dad's uh, my dad has two brothers who are physicians, and I also have an aunt who's a physician. And then my grandfather was a physician, and so I think it was definitely sort of a way of life in my family. And um, it was very clear to me from an early age that it was just an immensely gratifying way to live and serve the world. And I definitely had a little detour in terms of thinking about also wanting to be a writer, but I, I always hope to become a doctor. Yeah. So, so there is a lot of resemblance, uh, you know, in our backgrounds, uh, you know, my father was a cardiologist. Uh, my uh, cousin, uh, sister is a pediatric pulmonologist. Um, actually my maternal grandfather was a family physician. And so, um, you know, for my brother and I, um, who my, my, my brother is also a cardiologist. So, so for my brother and I, it was, uh, you know, it, it, like you said, it was a, a way of life Yeah. and, you know, like yourself, I actually had a detour as well into becoming an author and a writer. Um, which, which I, I have actually managed to publish my first poetry book earlier this year. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so no, so that, that is, um, uh, that is, um, you know, it's, it's unarguable, it's an unarguable force. If, if someone happens to be a physician in the family, in my opinion, what, what was it, uh, like, you know, in your childhood, you, you know, what sort of memories do you have? you know, that, that sort of paved the pathway for you to pursue medicine? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. So I was extremely close to my grandfather who also was a rheumatologist. And when I was, gosh, probably five or six, he got laryngeal cancer and, um, he wrote a book about it called the taste of my own medicine and the book was made into the movie, The Doctor, starring William Hurt. I think this was in 1992 or so. So just that experience alone was pretty formative because he sort of became temporarily a, a famous doctor. And um, he had a practice um, in Portland, Oregon, with his with his own brother, who was a general surgeon, and then... Um, his son and then nephew. And it was sort of in the center of, of Portland. And right next to his practice was a restaurant called Rose's Restaurant, which was actually owned by my great grandmother, who his, his wife's mother. So, uh, um, and so he and his colleagues would eat lunch there every day. So I, I have a lot of memories of sort of hanging out at the restaurant, seeing all of them eating lunch, and then watching him sort of share this experience of, you know, doctor to patient. Um, so that was part of it. And then, and then he and I were extremely close. And now my, my sister is, is an endocrinologist, my younger sister. But um, when I went to medical school, I was the first grandchild at that point. And so, um, so he, you asked me specifically about childhood. So this is getting into medical school. So a little bit later, but he wanted to write a book together. I'll set that part aside. I, I think in terms of, um, you know, my memories of, of my childhood are sort of my, my father is a physician scientist. So I just have these memories of him sort of, um, 
you know, at the dining room table with just stacks and stacks of medical journals and my mother, you know, taking care of us and cooking and then leaving to go take care of a patient who was having a STEMI and then, you know, coming back. But it was all very much, it was a very happy childhood. All these memories are like, it was clear that my parents loved their work and they loved us and, and neither got in the way of the other. And I think it just was also, I think when you see that you realize, um, you know, how gratifying work can be. And, and then I think, I think when you go out into the community, so there's always this, you know, we go to synagogue or I'm at school or I'm out, you know, shopping with my mom and we run into people who say, you know, your, your grandfather took care of us for our whole lives or, you know, your father, um, save my vision. And then all the time people would say to me, you know, your mother, you know, saved my husband's life. And that's incredibly powerful as a child. Yes, you're right. Uh, you know, I think, uh, so, you know, several aspects that you touched, which, uh, you know, make, uh, childhood memories, uh, incredibly special. And, um, you know, just the way you described it very vividly is thank you for doing that. Um, you know, are some of the memories, you know, I hope I could create for my kids. Yeah. But, you know, uh, you know, the, the memories uh, are important, right? Cause they, they, uh, even now, you know, uh, it's like an instant flashback and they're, they're so impressionable, uh, that you then decide to take on a similar career path. Um, you, you know, which, um, you know, um, obviously as, as physicians, you know, we are privileged to touch, um, several lives and, you know, impact, um, lives and families and people in incredibly special ways. So, you know, it's, it's truly a privilege to be able to do what we do. Uh, let me ask you this. It might be a tough question to ask, but, uh, uh to answer, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, just, um, uh, focusing on, you know, growing up in your childhood, was it more, um, uh, the memories, uh, from, interactions you had with your father or was it from your mother? Cause you know, you, you, you were, you were, um, you're the product of a dual physician household. <laughs> That's a funny question only because my dad and I, I'd always ask my dad who's smarter, you or mom. And he would say there are different kinds of smart. And I think that <laughs> like the sort of the way I've, I live my life is I, I'm very much a mix of both of them in terms of my personality. I mean, I chose my mom's field. Yes. Um, but my dad is, um, you know, my dad is, is a, is a scientist and I'm not a scientist in any way, but I think that, um, you know, the, this impulse to sort of create or to, to publish, you know, it probably I share with him a little bit, although my mom is actually, uh, extremely creative. I always tell her, you know, she, for, she's an incredible cook and she has an incredible eye. And so I, I see her when she, you know, um, when she makes a meal or when she decorates something like her, her, um, like the amount of thought and creativity that goes into it. I, when I see her do that, sometimes I think, oh, that's why like that impulse I share in terms of anything I write. Um, but I don't know in terms of, you know, which parent influenced me more. I mean, it's, 
it's just so it's impossible to answer those questions. They're such a team also. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I mean, I think that like, I like the pace of cardiology. There's no question about that. Like I like being in the hospital. I like taking care of really sick people. I like having to make very quick decisions. Um, and so cardiology, and I, you know, when I, when I decided to do cardiology, I, I was just always sort of blown away by it. Um, you know, even at, as a medical student, we had some lecture on cardiology the first day of medical school. I just remember getting goosebumps all over my body. It was like very visceral reaction. And I never felt any differently. But then I think as I went through training, I think what I found really exciting was that we had so much data um, to guide our practice. And then there's also this aspect that, you know, is so behavioral. And I, I used to be a competitive runner. So I think back then it was more interesting to me that there was this behavioral aspect. Now that's, it's not something that I've really incorporated into my career in terms of doing a lot of prevention or counseling around exercise and diet. But at the time it, it was interesting to me for that reason. And, 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 you know, rheumatology is obviously so different. It's, it's, um, it's very cerebral. Um, and again, my dad, my dad is, um, he studies uveitis and so, you know, inflammation of the eye and, um, so what he does is very, you know, sub sub specialized and he loves it, but I, I never developed sort of a, a specific scientific passion, um, in either field. I mean, it was just always clear to me that what I loved, I love taking care of patients and I love to write and I feel very lucky that I get to do both. Yeah. So, um, let's delve a little bit into the writing aspect of your career. Um, when did that happen? And like, was that something you wanted to pursue from, you know, again, once again, childhood, or was it early, uh, you know, like teenage years or when you were in medical school? When, when did that, when did that mature? Uh, yeah. Um, I do remember in high school, um, like loving having a paper to write the process of it, like the process of sort of understanding that comes with writing and, sort of feeling that initial satisfaction. We d- we had this international baccalaureate program in my high school. And so both the history classes and the English classes, you know, required a lot of writing. And um, I found that immensely satisfying. But in college, um, I took a creative writing class on a whim, I think the fall of my junior year. And um, I started reading a lot of short stories and then, you know, obviously writing them because it was a fiction writing class. And I found it really thrilling and cathartic. And I also ended up making some incredible friends. And I think that, um, I think it almost, it was more social than anything else, but you realize how well you get to know people, you know, I'd been doing pre-med and then all, you know, these huge classes with 300 people and we're competing everybody for the best grade in the class. And it's kind of gross. And, um, I don't, I didn't, I mean, I wanted to, to get the science under my belt, but I didn't like that environment. And then suddenly it was this like very different environment where you're just like, thinking about the world and what it means and also developing these incredible friendships. And I loved that. And I loved the chance to create instead of just taking these multiple choice tests that it, it felt then, you know, like your life depended on it. Um, so I really loved that. And then, um, 
I ended up actually, um, I've always been fascinated by um, mother-daughter relationships, I especially was then. Um, and I had this group of like, really wonderful and intense female friends. And we spent a lot of time, I mean, we were in college, so we were like figuring out who we were and um, sort of separating from our mothers in some ways. And um, so I wrote a, a my thesis was like short stories about mothers and daughters. And so I had to take feminist studies in order to, to, to do that. But that's what I ended up doing. And I sort of loosely based it on several friends. And it was really, I, I found that project very fulfilling. It was almost like writing a book, you know, and a themed book. And um, I had this amazing mentor. Her name's Elizabeth Talent. And I don't know. I just, I learned a lot and it, it became very clear to me then that, you know, being able to create was sort of central to my happiness. Um, but it, but I never veered far from, from wanting to be a doctor. Um, I did then though apply to get, um, masters in fine arts programs. So I did end up going for one year right out of college to Columbia and, um, for an MFA in fiction writing and about, I had, I was at Stanford. So, you know, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. So I'd always been on the West coast. And then, uh, two weeks after I moved to New York, nine 11 happened. And it was, um, I've been thinking about it a lot because of, um, Corona just in terms of how hard it was to understand how horrible it was, how many people had died, the magnitude of tragedy. And, um, so I, I, I thought I should write about it, but I didn't write about it very well. And, um, and again, it was fiction. It wasn't a nonfiction writing program. And I just sort of shut down that year. Like I, I think it was just an incredible, like it was right out of college, this horrible thing happened to the world. I didn't know how to think about it. And I spent most of my days wandering around lower Manhattan, like people posted all these pictures of people who had died. And that was like the only way I could figure out how to process the grief. And, um, so I dropped out. Um, it just, and I think it became very clear to me then that like writing is great as, as an adjunct to something else, but that I needed to sort of be in the world doing something. And so I, I went to medical school the next year and, um, that was, well, it has its own challenges, but, and, and I at first felt like I couldn't be creative, but at least I felt like I was on a path to doing what I loved. And, and that was true, but that it was at that juncture that my grandfather, whom I mentioned, so by then he was in his eighties and he'd had this incredible success with this first book that, you know, was made into a movie. And, um, when I started medical school, he had this idea that we would, that he was going to have this second book, but this book was one that we would write together, sort of a then and now about medicine and how it's changed. He would, he, and he, to do this, he started writing me all these letters about his experiences and asking me what I would do. And I actually never responded. Not, I mean, not because I, I loved him more than anything, but I was busy. And also I felt like, I knew enough then from having written that, you know, you needed like a structure, you needed themes, all these things. And I felt like the stories just didn't hang together in this way. I had ever knew how to move forward. Um, but it was our bond. Like it was, 
um, it was, you know, a huge part of my life in this way, like between, between us, like we talked about it all the time. And every time I visited him, he was in Oregon. So, and I was at UCSF. And so, you know, I flew home a lot to see him and he just, the second I would walk in, he would say like, sit down and I'm going to tell you a story, like write it down. I mean, it was like this almost frenetic impulse to get them out. And, um, he died, uh, I, th- I think about a month before I finished residency. So in 2009 and he left me with these, um, he sent me, he would send them in, in binders and I have like these two volumes of stories and letters that he wrote me. And, um, before Corona happened, actually, I was finally pulling them together to write this book, um, which hopefully I'll get back to if, if, if it seems like a reasonable thing to do after all of this, after the dust settles with this, if it settles. Yes. Um, no, thanks for taking us through that. Um, you know, again, uh, yeah, no, no, it, it's, it's great because, you know, again, it's, it's very detailed. It's vivid. Um, I, I, I can almost uh, picture you as a novelist, right? Because that's what, um, you know, as someone has uh, attention to detail, um, uh, and can vividly describe, uh, you know, distinct uh, pivot points in, in life, which would then translate into uh, a career path. You know, I think you have it in you, the ingredients, in my opinion, you have it in you, the ingredients to be um, a, a very good, um, I think, writer, author, novelist. So, you know, I'll probably uh, take you up on that, you know, just uh, m- maybe garner a few lessons for myself, because uh, I, I'm I'm trying to finish my fiction novel, which, you know, the, the poetry book was the prelude to what, uh, uh, the fiction novel is about. It's, it's, it's set, it's set up in 286 BC and, uh, you know, my, my fiction novel, and it's, uh, the journey of a man, a prince through love and war. Um, and, you know, I, I, wa- I wanted to, I, so the message, the overarching message for the novel is, is a spiritual one. And, and I, the, the chapters are based on the chapters of the holy text of the Bhagavad Gita is, is a text that I, I follow and I try to live my life by. Um, and I, I just felt that, uh, the, in the modern, if that, if that is even a word, uh, I should probably say contemporary because, you know, I think more than some people uh, call it into question. So maybe contemporary in the contemporary world that we live in, um, I, I feel that some of the core messages of spirituality and and um, you know complex human emotions uh, are have been lost or are lost, and and I think I, I felt a strong need to be able to um, write. Um, a story which would somehow communicate that to our generation mm-hmm. um, and, you know, has been very cathartic for me personally. So, you know, I, I, it, I do resonate uh, quite a bit with your sentiment of writing being cathartic. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, there's definitely truth in there. Yeah. So no, well, I, I wish you, I, well, I definitely want, um, as someone who admires your work and, and, and your writing, I definitely want you to pursue that project. 
um, <laughs> I, I think it's going to be worthwhile, <laughs> and I think I think it's I think it's going to be very well perceived because you know you're. Thank you. <laughs> so getting to your writing, because you know what I was saying was um, that you know your articles resonate very well with the readers, and I is not only me saying that. I mean, I've obviously seen the reaction on social media and Twitter, but I've also interacted with you know, friends and colleagues who have read your, Thank you. uh, your work in the New England Journal of Medicine and are extremely fond of it. So I, I definitely think you have yeah. an established audience base already. So you should pursue that work. Um, which brings me to my next question. I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool to be the national correspondent of the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, that's such a that's such a cool title to have. Like I'm I'm envious of you know um, of of that title. But how how did how did that happen? I think it's it's phenomenal that you um, you are in that position and the your, your work um, which you've done in that role is is incredible. So congratulations for everything. But you take us through the story of how that how that happened. Okay, let me see. Also, sometimes. I think there are others. I know we have an international correspondent, so I'm not the only one. I just want to make that clear. I um. So let's see. I was a cardiology fellow, and I'm trying to remember when I first realized is that there, at some point during my residency, I learned that the New England Journal had an editorial fellowship for a year, and then. I, I matched for cardiology fellowship, I, th- I think before I actually knew that. And so um, I did the clinical training. And then after that, yes. I did a one year um, editorial fellowship at the New England Journal. And it was a really special year um, in lots of ways. So first of all, I was, um, it was the 200th anniversary year for the journal. And so they took two fellows that year. Now they take two or three, we have three this year. Um, that's normal, but at the time it wasn't as normal, I think. Um, and so Daniela Lamas was my co-fellow. I don't know if you know her, but she's, um, unbelievably talented and she's a critical care doctor and also a writer. She's been writing a lot about COVID in the New York times. And anyway, we were together and, um, it was just like really (laughs) fun. Um, she's just brilliant and funny and we shared an office and I learned a ton from her because she had been, an editor, I think editor in chief at Harvard Crimson. And so she had this um, reporting background, which I totally didn't have. I had just done that, you know, one year in creative writing and dropped out. And so that year was really formative for me for lots of reasons. It was, um, I learned a lot about writing from Daniela. And I also, you know, it, it was in 2012. So it had been 11 years since I'd actually had time to just write and think. And, you know, the first time I did it in 2001, I sort of fell apart. And so this time though, with medical training under my belt, I really, um, found it, um, extremely gratifying again. And, and I found that I was able to structure my days around it, which, you know, is, is one of the biggest challenges I think with writing is you, you have to be able to sort of, I mean, it's miserable in a lot of ways. Um, And so you have to be able to figure out like how you can feel like your life has purpose and structure. But I, but it, but I did during that year. And so that was a big signal to me that maybe this was sort of worth pursuing. 
And the other part of it was just, it's incredible to be at the New England Journal. I think that was probably the best part. I mean, the editors are so smart and so thoughtful and so kind. And, you know, I think that just being able to be sort of someone who got to listen into the conversations about science was really transformative for me. Um, I don't think I just, until you're on the inside and you, and you understand, you grasp sort of the thought that goes into decisions about what to publish and everything that surrounds that it's, it's, it's hard to understand. But I think that, um, I think it, you know, a couple of things came out of it. One is that I, I wanted to write, but also that I, I really liked being part of this scientific endeavor. And I really liked thinking about questions around science, you know, which ended up being a, a lot of what I write about, you know, I wrote about conflicts of interest or, um, the use of a vaccine or, you know, ethics of, um, child design. I mean, these are all things that come up at the journal and, and, tend to be topics that I find really fascinating to explore. And so I guess in terms of my career trajectory, that year was important because I got to know the editors and in particular, Jeff Drazen. And so by that time, he, he was editor-in-chief at the time. And so by that time, I had actually already matched for another fellowship, the Robert Johnson Clinical Scholars Program. And so I did that thinking that actually maybe I still wanted a research career. And I was particularly interested in um, risk perception. And so I went to Penn where they have incredible um, people who are doing work in, in behavioral economics. Um, Kevin Volt, David Ash were my mentors and it was awesome to work with them. And I ended up, they were doing this huge trial on um, improving medication adherence post-MI. And I did like a qualitative study within that where I just interviewed 30 people who'd had an MI and talk to them about how it felt to be taking medications. And when I went to publish the data, I found that all I wanted to do was tell these people's stories and that I had gone through this whole sort of process of the IRB and all that stuff. And, and I was trying to make tables with the themes of the stories and it felt like everything was lost in translation. And so that was like a huge moment for me in terms of, do I want to go down this path of sort of empirical work or do I want to just be able to tell people's stories? And it turned out, you know, the, the latter was true. And I ended up writing up the the research, I, and I say that in quotes, um, as an essay in the New England Journal. And, um, and after that, I ended up, I think, well, in the midst of that, I started, I sort of offered myself to the New York, to the New Yorker. They, it was, it was after the ACA had been passed and there was a lot of stuff happening with health policy and we had a summer where we could do anything we wanted. And so I wrote to the online editor at the New Yorker and asked if I could come help with health content. And then um, when I was there, I started doing some writing for them for their online site. And I really got a kick out of that. I mean, for a million reasons, but it was just fun to be in the office and it was fun to help them. And it was just a totally different environment than new, the New England Journal, but also totally awesome. And um, so basically the second year of that fellowship, I was just doing a lot of writing. And um, at that time, I call, I wrote, I wrote Jeff Drazen an email asking him for career advice, because here, I mean, there I was, I was basically, you know, a cardiologist who was writing. And I just felt like, 
you know, who's going to want to hire me really? Like, (laughs) I don't know. It just seemed like a reach. And um, so I asked Jeff for advice and then he said, let's talk tomorrow. And he said, and then we talked the next day and he said, why don't you come write for us and you can take an academic job anywhere you want. And I was like, completely surprised. I didn't, I didn't think it just never even crossed my mind that that would be an option at all. And so I was like, yes, like that sounds amazing. And, um, and then, you know, then it came, I had to figure out, you know, where I wanted to be. And, and Jeff really, um, encouraged me to interview at the Brigham and, um, you know, the Brigham is just a phenomenal place to be a cardiologist and a doctor. And I, I walked in to my interview that day. And, and again, I told you how I felt the first day of medical school when I started learning cardiology, the goosebump feeling, but it was very similar. I mean, I had read Bronwald's textbooks. My mom gave them to me when I was a medical student and, and, you know, just the breadth and depth of talent in the division is sort of, it's still totally stunning to me. And I, I like the feeling of being around people who are just really smart and talented and pushing me. And so once I stepped in, (laughs) in the door there, I I felt like I didn't want to be anywhere else. And, um, I still really feel that way about both places. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, it's like, um, you work at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and then you work in the New England Journal of Medicine. Like, I, I don't think there there could be uh, more intellectually stimulating places on the planet um, other than those two. And, you know, you just happen to be there. So that's that's incredible. It really is. Yeah, I feel extremely lucky. I mean, just deeply lucky um, every day, actually. And um yeah, the sense of awe I feel for my colleagues never goes away. It's probably it probably only intensifies as I get to know them better and you know understand their work. And um, as a writer, it's just incredibly like to be able to be around people who are you know leading the field or you know just having unbelievable insights. Like it's really fortunate. Yeah, no, it it truly is. Um, so uh, you know, I I resonate with. Um, your description of how special it it was um, to be at the New England Journal of Medicine office. I was privy to one of the editorial board meetings on a Thursday afternoon. That's when it happened, right? Yeah. Wow. So when I was a fellow at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, um, I got interested. So I I had to make a career decision of whether to pursue a year in structural heart interventions, um, learning how to do TAVRs, and, and mitroclips or, uh, pursue, um, uh, you know, pursue a year, um, at the New England Journal of Medicine with the editorial fellowship. Um, so I did apply, I I went through a formal application process and I was invited for an interview. So the interview pretty much was, um, you know, trying to, so they had scheduled, um, me to meet with the, the current fellow, which, you know, unfortunately I could not see her at the time. I think she was traveling from, uh, London. I think she was, uh, I think she was either a PhD at the, um, school of, uh, public health and tropical hygiene in London. Um, and she was in New York on an assignment. Um, but, but I missed her. So, um, they, they did, uh, pair me with, um, a few, um, of the associate editors. Um, 
and um it was just it was just an, it was just an incredible experience to interview with them and then just uh, uh be able to have lunch with Jeff Drazen and and uh, John Charco and all the other associate editors um on a Thursday uh, afternoon uh you know and then you know because of um the career trajectory um that I wanted to pursue at the time and also visa restrictions yeah. uh, that that just didn't didn't uh, materialize but you know part of me uh, still feels that you know maybe one day maybe one day I even even in even later in my career like I would want to just take a sabbatical and, and go back and apply and and you know and spend that year in the New England Journal of Medicine office. It's, it's just, yeah. it's, it's one of the things I really, really want to do, but I don't know if, if, if it'll ever happen, but that afternoon was, was incredibly special. I would, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, it's uh, on my bucket list of things to do. So, you know, one day, I don't know when, but yeah, ho- hoping, hoping I, that, I recommend that, it hoping that will, <laughs> that moment will arrive in my life. So, you know, Switching gears um, yeah. and just, uh, you know, trying, probably trying to conclude the, the podcast by asking you about, uh, and, you know, thank you for penning some really incredible articles from covering the story from Italy yeah. on COVID-19. Um, what do you think about, um, so how, how have you processed the current situation, the COVID-19 pandemic? And... Um, where do you think uh, we're headed in the near future? And, and also, um, you know, I mean, there are going to be long, long-term implications um, of COVID-19, you know, whether it's um, health or social or socioeconomic or political, uh, you know, it, it, these occurrences change the world. Um, they really do. Yeah. What do you, what do you, how do you process it? What do you think about it? And where, where do you think this is going to go? So, I mean, I, I process it on two levels, emotionally and then intellectually. And emotionally, I would say I I haven't processed it very well at all insofar as I just, I feel this diffuse grief and I don't know what to do with it. I think a lot of people feel that way, but it's just so many people have died. So many people's lives have been destroyed. I find it impossible to sort of fathom. Anytime I try to think about it, I just sort of feel paralyzed by it. And and I I think a lot of people feel that way. And I don't know how we as a collective are going to um, deal with that. But um, so that's my emotional reaction. As far as sort of what's going to happen, I I feel compelled to say, obviously, I have no expertise in this. I, I, you know, what I know is from reading like you read and, you know, reading the New York Times and Twitter and then the reporting I've done, which doesn't really tell me what's going to happen. It's just more about what has happened. Um, But I don't, I mean, it's very hard to see a way forward in this moment, given, you know, the the inadequacy of testing at this point. Um, Clearly, we need to ramp that up so much more to be able to to move toward opening society and um, protecting those who are vulnerable. Um, and, you know, I, I have hope for a vaccine, but I have no sense of, of, you know, whether we'll get one ever. And if so, when I think antibody testing will be hopefully helpful, but 
I don't think anyone yet knows whether those with antibodies will have enduring immunity. Um, and I hope that we'll find treatments, but clearly there is not a lot yet that, you know, suggests so much benefit that we could really any benefit actually that we could, you know, safely open society and treat people who are sick. Um, so I'm, I'm not feeling a lot of optimism. I, I wish I had something else. Yeah. To it's, say. um, it's been numbing and paralyzing, you know, like you said, um, on, on many levels, you know, on certainly the number of lives lost. Uh, and, you know, I was just talking to one of my colleagues about this. Uh, you know, if you look at the, um, if you look at the number, um, it now almost equates to the number of lives lost, um, due to, due to, due to influenza. But th th that number is an annual number. Uh, and you know, what has happened with COVID-19 is that number has just been truncated into just lives lost within a matter of weeks, like several weeks. And, you know, that's what's really numbing and paralyzing about it. Um, and, you know, to, to obviously read, um, you know, your, your coverage of what happened, uh, to our colleagues in Italy and, uh, you know, I just, um, the, the memoirs coming out of New York, uh, city and, uh, you know, I, I have five friends who live in, in New York city and work as physicians in New York city. And, um, they've sort of told me, uh, what's happened, uh, in, in New York. And it's, um, it's very troubling. It's, it's, um, you, you sort of, um, you, you know, keep yourself, uh, in their shoes and it's, it's unfathomable, you know, the amount of emotional turmoil and, and exhaustion that they have gone through or are going through. And uh, I'm sure at a psychological level, this is going to have, uh, a, a life lasting impact, you know, on them and, you know, how they think through medicine and practice medicine and, you know, this is the, this is the calamity of our lifetime. Uh, and, and I, I, I hope, uh, that there isn't, uh, another pandemic in, in, in our lifetime, at least, uh, or, or for that matter ever. But, you know, it, it sort of is the, is, is the way the nature works. Um, there have been pandemics and there are going to be pandemics. And I think, yeah. You know, for me, the important lesson um, is uh, is a very important lesson in in public health uh, and and how important it is to take public health very seriously. Yeah. You know, I was listening. I was listening to uh, Howard Buckner. I mean, he's um, come up with a fantastic series of of podcasts for the JAMA Network, and um, you know, he was he's interviewed some really incredible people, and you know, the, the take home message is that. United States in particular, or maybe the Western countries in particular, have gotten so good at infection prevention that public health was, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was never mainstream for many, many years. And, and generations of people came and, and left, and this was never really an occurrence in their lives. So they never really troubleshoot, uh, troubleshooted it or thought about it but now that it's here i think it's going to put public health back into the mainstream yeah. i i hope so. yeah yeah i hope so if you let them yeah i'm every day i search for silver linings and i haven't found many yet
Yes, no, it's uh, these are just um, very strange and unusual circumstances. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.